Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Well, how long can you keep a secret before it's time you decide to reveal yourself as someone in the middle of one of the most incredible scandals in American history known as Watergate? My next guest will break it all down for me as he was the lawyer for 91-year-old Mark Felt. That's right. Mark Felt, Deep Throat, Watergate, John D. O'Connor represented, and actually before that he was with the Justice Department as a U.S. attorney, and then he took on the case for Mr. Felt because he was so fascinated with Watergate in his 20s. Uh, I have the man right here, John D. O'Connor. Thanks for joining me. Hey, good to be with you. So we're at Watergate at 50, and obviously I'm only 30, so I don't know the whole history, but I've been talking to people who do, and I'm talking to you who was right in the middle of it as an attorney, and then you know you had an involvement with investigations, and you read all the president's men, but I, I want to first start with the age factor here, because as I said, Mark Fell, you represented him, but he didn't want to you know, be known as Deep Throat until he was in his... 90s. So take us through the process. And I know you wrote about it in numerous books. Well, sure. First of all, until I came along, he never wanted to be revealed at all. It was not a real uh, easy thing for him psychologically to get to the point where he revealed himself. Um, The first thing I would tell you, and this is going to be somewhat surprising to your audience, but Bob Woodward, who was the reporter that met him in the garage and so forth, and to whom he gave tips, had made certain promises to Mark. One of the promises, which Woodward admits in his book, kind of glides over it, is he would never tell anybody he had a secret source uh, or this major secret source. And in fact, that's exactly what he did when he wrote his best-selling book in 1974, All the President's Men. And in there... Uh, hit movie in 76 which featured deep throat again as this mysterious figure that met him in the garage a very very great dramatic figure but so so he never wanted himself to be identified at any time now uh, he did not think that it was proper for an fbi agent to help a reporter as he did it just so happens that he felt it was the only alternative he had he had to meet with Woodward and explain to him his investigative hypothesis as to how this whole burglary might go up to the White House. Now, I will tell you this, oddly enough, at the end of the day, felt concluded that the burglary itself was not authorized by the White House or by the high figures at the White House. It was authorized by a couple lowly guys and the CIA had been behind it as well. But but at least at the beginning, Felt wanted, Felt thought that he was his investigation by the FBI was being stifled by the Justice Department and ultimately from the White House, who were not letting him look at parallel crimes. He wanted to look at parallel crimes, which did go to the Oval Office, even though there were pettier crimes. And he thought, well, this might be like one of the campaign dirty tricks, one of some of these pranks that were pulled on electoral opponents. So that's how this whole thing started. But in any case, he gave invaluable help to Woodward. Woodward, I will tell you, did not use any of the insights that Felt gave him that pointed to someplace other than Nixon as being a culprit. But but Felt did give him some insights, some a roadmap to how to go after Nixon. 
And that's what happened. Now let's fast forward. Woodward puts him in the spotlight with his book and movie, and Felt hates it because he figures that if he has fingered his deep throat, it will besmirch his beloved agency and it will make it look like the FBI had its finger on the scale. So he didn't want to do that. Uh, so now he's, he's uh, people every now and then, people would ask him if he was deep throat and he would angrily deny it. And after a while, people got the impression it wasn't him. In fact, it was Felt who floated the idea that deep throat was probably a composite. That is to say, Woodward really didn't have a deep throat, but it was a bunch of different people that he together called deep throat. Uh, but Felt was the guy who came up with that idea, and a lot of people bit off on it. But the point is, when I met Felt, and it was now 2000, let's fast forward, 25 years after the scandal ends, um, a fellow's at my house, and I'm talking to him. He's one of my daughter's friends from Stanford University. And he mentions that my dad had been an FBI agent. He mentioned that his grandfather had been an FBI agent. And so I asked him who it was, and he said, Mark Felt. And I said, well, Nick, you know your grandfather's deep throat. I'd like to come up and talk to him. I think I know why he's not talking. So I went up and met him. Well, John, tell us why, how you know that, because I know that you were investigating all of this. As, as the Mercury News put it, you were in the orbit of Watergate. So did Mark Felt's role come up as your time in, in the Justice Department as a prosecutor in 76? No, it did not. I, it was just something I did as a hobby. Uh, interestingly enough, one of Felt's former assistants, Charles Bates, headed up the San Francisco office. He was transferred, and this is very ironic, he was transferred to San Francisco because the White House thought he might be the leaker. So Charles Bates was out in San Francisco, but other than that, I didn't have any particular brush with, with Felt or with Watergate. Uh, but what I did do was I sort of made a hobby because I was a prosecutor and I thought this had a lot to do with the Justice Department. I always felt that. And so with my knowledge of things, I felt I could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt by 1976 that felt was deep throat. I didn't think anybody would believe me. Everybody else uh, who, let me just say this, I think the people that were looking for deep throat were not lawyers. And lawyers are pretty good at evidence. I'm not so sure all these journalists are. They're good at journalism, but that doesn't mean they're good investigators or people who know how to um, analyze evidence and say what's true, what's false, what's uh, weak, what's strong. So anyway, I was able to do that. It was very clear to me that felt was deep throat. I thought I could prove it. So in 2002, when I met his grandson, I said, hey, your dad's deep throat. I didn't, have, I didn't mince any words. I just said, hey, your dad's deep throat. Your granddad's deep throat. Let me talk to him. So... Uh, it took me a while. I, I talked to him about how what a hero a deep throat was, and he wouldn't admit it for a while, but I could tell the people he was concerned about, I knew because I understood the motives. If you're going to identify somebody like this, you've got to understand their motives. And I understood his motives as a lawman, as a Justice Department guy. And so that's the way I went after him and said, look, to me, you're a hero. Uh, and I kept calling him you. I would call him you, Deep Throat, our hero, because you kept our system pure. Now, he wouldn't admit it right away that he was that. But finally in time, he admitted it. Then he had some reluctance to go public, and finally we did that. But it still took a couple of years, a couple of years, for him to be comfortable with coming out. He, he agreed with it, then he'd backtrack, agreed with it, backtrack. But finally, after a couple of years, he got the idea that maybe 
it would be a good idea to come out and that he might be looked at as a hero. And by the time we finally did our Vanity Fair article in 2005, and this is three years after I first met him, uh, by that point, he was very comfortable with it. And he understood. And when we, when we did uh, come out, uh, he got universal accolades and applause and he felt very good about himself and he older folks are not good at harboring things uh can you imagine if he took it to the grave with him i think it might have ruined it might have really depressed him to do that it seems like from the way you describe it well he was depressed if you read woodward's book about him woodward visited him before i did in 2000 just to see if he could get material for his coming book figuring mark was going to die but by that point, Mark was very depressed, and he didn't want a, a thing to talk about Watergate. As far as he said, he said to Woodward, let's keep this closet door a closed door, and let's not talk about it. He didn't like that idea. He was very angry when somebody would bring it up. And so it took a while for Joan, his daughter, his lovely daughter, um, and uh, me and uh, his grandson to and his son, Mark uh, Jr., who was an Air Force pilot, uh, to um, to talk him into the whole idea that it's a good idea to come out and he would be praised. Okay. So it took a while, and but when he did, here's the remarkable thing. When he did come out, it was like a new man. He'd been depressed before. He was unhappy. He was just an old man waiting to die, hoping he'd get a glass of wine from his daughter and at the nighttime and eat his meal. But then he took on a new persona and people would come in and ask to visit and he would be, there'd be articles about him and so forth and so on. So he really enjoyed it and he really enjoyed work, basking in the glow of this whole thing with his family. Um, and so it was really a beautiful personal story. And really on a bigger note, what this did was it, it set me to go and invest for various reasons to go and investigate exactly how um, truthful the post was in its reporting. Because you see, let me put it this way. When he had something, a hypothesis that hurt the Nixon administration, oh, the Washington Post is very happy to print that. But then later on, when he developed evidence about the CIA, being really behind this whole thing. Now, the Post went radio silent. They didn't tell anybody that their great secret source had this view. So think about it. You're an anonymous source. They're only going to print from you that which you which they want to print. And you have no recourse. Uh, and if, if they don't print, you can't pop up and say, hey, I'm the secret source. By definition, mm. you're not going to say that. So what happened was, there were many things that the Post withheld. Uh, and so that's why I say that the study of Mark Felt is much more significant than just his heroism in, in helping a reporter with an investigation, even in a, no matter how important it is. There's a broader context here on a lesson to be learned about how the media does not always play square. John, they you're, play for their own rules. Your book is called, well, you've got two books out, The Mystery of Watergate, which is newer, What Really Happened, and then Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan 
advocacy journalism. I want to get to the cover-up part because everybody really gave Woodward and Bernstein the best praises and the best awards and, and what else. So I want to know what they covered up uh, in a minute. But, A, did you ever think you'd be writing about this in Vanity Fair? And, B, was he treated as a hero in Washington? Did he get invited down to Washington for an event in his 90s to honor him before, you know, he would pass on? Well, interesting. He wasn't invited that many places. He had a, they had a, and he couldn't really travel. He was very old and had trouble moving around. But, um, uh, and even they had something for him in Los Angeles where they gave him a, a some sort of a heroic award for you know for being a a, a brave source. And uh, his grandson went down to accept it. Uh, Mark didn't go, uh, so he couldn't go anyway if he wanted to. Uh, but he did uh, definitely enjoy. Uh, you know, participating, uh, and and he was a hero. The first poll that came out after his revolution revelation had eighty percent in favor of him as a hero, eleven percent thinking he's not a hero, and nine percent undecided. And as I told people at the time, look, twenty percent of the people in this country think Elvis is alive, so only eleven percent disapproving of you is pretty darn good, you know. Uh, so he was a hero, and people have always looked at him that way. But what has not taken hold, and what's important for your audience is that his story, really, as I tell it, and I tell it and I weave his story into what really happened in Watergate, is really a reflection of a media that has its own rules in, after Watergate. And after Watergate, the, the journalism profession realized it had political power and that it could have impacts on things. And that's why a lot of people went to journalism school back in the day after Woodward and Bernstein. But actually, once you say that you're going to journalism for political impact, well, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What is your job? Is it telling both sides? Is it telling all sides? There may be three or four sides. Or is it deciding what you think the story is, what you are gonna imprint on this, and that's the story you publish. Um, that's what really it became, that, that basically the, uh, the uh, journalists are going to decide, the media is going to decide what the story is, and rather than saying, let's figure out what the story is. Let's hear it. We're, let's put all the pieces together. That's what reporters should do. So look at the Duke lacrosse thing. Mm -hmm. Right away, it was very apparent that these guys were innocent, that this was made up. And I could figure it out the day afterwards. I called up the lawyer that represented all the, the group originally before they got their own separate lawyers. And I asked him what happened. He told me about the arrest and so forth and so on. It was very clear to me that she made up this tale so she wouldn't get uh, sent to the, dr uh, the drug tank. Um, and so, but, but the media had its own story on this. The media decided that they were going to hang these three kids. So they did. And they hang, hung all 42 for being accomplices of the three kids. And yet, it, it just if, if you're a good lawyer and you look at this, you say, this didn't happen. This is not the story. But these guys don't look at these journalists, especially today, that want to be Woodward and Bernsteins. They don't look at this as really trying to find the truth. They look at it as, what's the story that they like? And if it's the story they like, that's the one they're going to print. That's the one they're going to push. And so, boy, Russiagate comes along. Which, from the beginning, was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. And you could tell it right away for various reasons. Uh, but, and I read the 
dossier once it came out. I laughed at it. But these people that we call journalists are out there, and they're they're pushing this thing because it it helps them and it hurts Trump. Um, at the same time, I have found now this is real interesting because they have their own power, their own story, their people unto themselves. They really don't need. Um, Their power does not come from support the way other. If you're in local radio or you're a podcaster, you don't get very far if you don't have an audience that thinks what you're doing is good. Those are very democratic forms of communication. Local radio, podcasts, and so forth, they represent who their audience is, and they get audiences based on the quality of what they do and so forth. But the big elite media... They have so much power, but what choice do you have? You, they have an oligopoly on the airways. Sure. You know, uh, so so what we have is a situation in which they can do what they want to do. And John, that's, we have, that's where we are today. We also have a situation where it seems to me Mark Felt kept his identity secret for so many years, yet how many tell-alls have we seen alone in the last administration? I mean, where was the difference? What's the change in the last 50 years from someone – not only protecting himself, but let's say protecting the the agency, as you say. But now you've got everybody else saying their own story. It's like there's no um, there there's no pride in themselves as they go out and write these tell-all books. Some that's kind of how I feel. Meanwhile, Mark well, kind of yes, had pride me, in what he did. Yeah, let me tell you this: the the difference, even after Watergate, I was with the Justice Department and I worked on the Patty Hearst case, and I kept telling my senior guys hey you should write a book about this oh no oh no that's really wrong that's now today everybody writes a book you know guy you know whoever it is and and a lot of it is confidential that's the other thing a lot of a lot of this is breaching confidence um and it's really undignified in my view uh to to do this and but yeah these tell-all books are really not a good thing in my view uh people say okay well let me just uh I'll write a book about everything I talked to the president about. Well, where are our principles? You shouldn't be writing about what you talked to the president about. That should be by nature confidential. And whenever you're in the January 6th hearings, they're running to these testimonies like there's no tomorrow. It's like nothing of what Mark felt represented is being represented in in Washington today. Well, that's right. There there should be. First of all, I represented the government civilly, and I will guarantee you that there's a very robust – executive privilege and then there's also what they call the administrative privileges administrators are discussing for instance what policy to have about arsenic in the water that is privileged and of course executive privilege the president and so forth and the executives they have a a robust privilege now to on top of that a lot of these people are lawyers and there's an attorney client privilege there now there's a little bit of grayness as to who was acting as a lawyer and who was just a lawyer acting politically. But the point, all of, all of these relationships have inherent in them some sort of confidentiality of provisions or fiduciary duty provisions. You have a heightened sense of duty in these uh, positions, and you shouldn't be going out blabbing whenever you feel like blabbing and then have people say, oh, you're so heroic for testifying. No. First of all, if you testify and it's a legitimate piece of testimony and you're telling the truth and it's legitimate for you to testify. Well, you're not heroic. You're doing what everybody should do now. If it, uh, but you know, it, it seems like, uh, 
that's not really the test we we um, employ anymore. And it's really sort of a breakdown of our society. We don't have any boundaries now about what's private and what's not. I mean, somebody, I mean, I like a pretty woman as much as anybody else, but people don't think there's like Kendall Jenner. I don't know if you really know who Kendall Jenner is, but she's one of the Kardashian kids. Sure. But she just posted an Instagram shot of her, you know, her bare backside, you know, just completely uh, without any clothes on. That was her backside, not her front side. But my point is, that's that's sort of the way life is. I think it's become, in today's society, it's become very crude and without without shame and without principles. And I think mm-hmm. we've gone too far in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I'm not real fond of these people that love to get in the limelight like when Trump was impeached on Ukraine, this is national security. This is another privilege. On Russia, yeah, he was. Uh... Yeah, in Ukraine and Ukraine as well as Russia. But for instance, who are this? Who's Colonel Vindman to come in and start talking about whatever he's talking about, or uh, uh, somebody in the State Department talking about foreign policy and so forth? You shouldn't be doing that. This is and, and, and national security is within the president's ambit under the Constitution, and you just shouldn't be talking about unless the president says you should be. But this is what's terrible. I mean, how much intelligence do we give out there, and how mm-hmm. much weakness do we show to the world by talking about this stuff? It's really not a good thing. We'll continue with more with John D. O'Connor after this on Alex Garrett Podcasting. And welcome back to Alex Garrett Podcasting. I continue with. Mysteries of Watergate author John D. O'Connor. He was actually in the DOJ uh, in 1976 acting as a prosecutor. But I know that you were also involved during the Nixon administration within the DOJ. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I was only involved in San Francisco, not in, in uh, Washington, D.C. So I was just a junior guy in San Francisco. And I had nothing to do directly with Watergate. If I were a couple of years older, I probably would have joined the... Um, I would have joined the uh, special prosecutor staff. My father's law partner was uh, one of the uh, people that got fired in the Saturday Night Massacre, a fellow by the name of William Ruckelshaus. So I was sort of connected in by that, but just through family connections. Uh, and he was one of the people that refused to fire special uh, prosecutor uh, Archibald Cox on a Saturday night. First, Elliot Richardson, the attorney general, wouldn't fire him on behalf of President Nixon. Then my father's partner, William Ruckelshaus, who was the deputy attorney general, wouldn't fire him. And finally, uh, um, the next in line was a fellow named uh, Robert Bork, who became a, a, a controversial figure himself. Um, and he, he He's the one that didn't, didn't he want to be on the, wasn't he appointed the court, Supreme Court, and then they didn't allow him on or something? To that right, right. He, he got borked, as they say. He got borked. It was one of the worst uh examples of advice and consent of the senate they were so happy and it became a uh, became a verb they would say they borked they borked people <laughs> and that's all they did they made it look here's a guy that is absolutely brilliant he's absolutely honest he's um you know and straightforward and an excellent conservative choice and you know, Ted Kennedy and people went to town and said, well, if we get work on there, we're going to have back alley abortions. And, uh, blacks are going to be subservient and all this stuff. And it just was just ridiculous, made no sense at all. But they got rid of him. They failed to confirm him. 
And so, uh, so Bork has had his share of uh, tough luck. Um, but so it, it was, I'll say this, the Watergate was an exciting time. But as I look back on it, one of the things that happened there was, and this is the Republicans at the time were very civil, genteel, I would call them country club Republicans that were in these offices. And they played by the rules. And they weren't playing hardball. And we see them saying, okay, they've got a case on Nixon. I guess, okay, I don't like it, but I'll have to vote. I, I have honor. I have to vote. If he did these crimes, he's got he's to leave. And that was fine. Then what happens is President Clinton now uh, not only covers up the crime, but he actually committed the deed. I mean, it really wasn't a crime. It was just basically hanging out with his, with his uh, intern. Uh, but he lied about it. And here's a president under oath lying, which Richard Nixon never lied under oath. But this time, the Democrats just stuck together and they said, we don't care. We're not going to allow him to go. We want power more than principle. And so I think it really infuriated the Republicans to see that, to realize that here the Republicans play by the rules. The president got caught doing something. Okay, he's got to be impeached. And now Clinton, this happens to Clinton. And they see that... The same rules don't apply. And when uh, Billy Car Jimmy Carter was in office, his brother Billy got a sweetheart deal. He was a foreign agent, was paid by Muammar Gaddafi, our biggest terrorist enemy at the time of Libya. And uh, that when they finally caught him that he had taken 220000 bucks from Libya, oh, they cut him a sweetheart deal. They'd never even prosecuted him. Uh, even though he lied about it for years. So I think there became a sense over time that the that, that people that are playing straight and playing square are getting the raw end of the deal, and the other folks that are just sort of power mad are, are you know, pushing their way around Washington. John, I've got to ask really, you, yeah. knowing Mark Felt, did they, it sounds to me that you don't think they accurately... Represent. By the way, people might be saying, well, why are you talking about all this other stuff in addition to Watergate? But I could see that you're laying it out, how that set the precedent for everything we're seeing every year now, it seems like. So that's an interesting perspective. But a couple of things. Uh, all the President's Men, I know you read the book. Were they? Was the movie good? Was it just, um, was it schlock? I mean, what did you think? Also, uh, to you... Woodward and Bernstein, I feel like they've just lived off this for 50 years, um, and, and that's their claim to fame, but have they been good journalists since then? I know Woodward's dipped his toe, well, or, and Bernstein, too. Here's, yeah, here's the way I would answer that. First of all, the movie was fantastic. The book was great. Now, the movie was a dramatic portrayal and, you know, maybe, you know, kind of pulled its punches on certain things, but it was a great movie. Uh, now, what I would say is this. It's interesting about the trajectory of the careers of each of the two of them. Bernstein was put on the beat for Woodward, and Woodward stayed on the case because he had this sore, steep throat. That's the only reason he stayed on the thing. And uh, and Woodward has always been a very hardworking guy who gets up early in the morning and does his stuff. He's a very poor writer, which is not a good trait for a journalist. Um Bernstein was much more florid and fancy in his prose. And so they stuck Bernstein on the beat with Woodward so that Bernstein would write the articles. But the joke around the Wood, the Post newsroom was that uh, Woodward wrote English as a second language. Yeah. 
But what happened, though, to Woodward, because of Deep Throat, people then trusted that they could talk to him confidentially. Uh, and he started developing sources. And as he developed sources, he ended up getting writing some good books. They're not, and they were good because he got inside access. I guess you would call it access journalism. He did uh, several books on Bush during the various wars and was very good on those. He did a book on the Supreme Court. So he's good about getting access, and I got to give him kudos for that. Um, he was, he, he's been less than honest the whole time about, about Watergate and what happened at Watergate, and he's still saying a lot of stuff that really isn't true about Watergate being a campaign operation. It was not a campaign operation saying that it was driven by Nixon's lust for power. It wasn't driven by Nixon's lust for power. He didn't, he had nothing to do with it, but I think Woodward's turned out to be a fine journalist and he should be given credit for what he's done. His skill is getting people to talk. Uh, That's really what he does. And he does very well. Now, Bernstein hasn't done a thing since then. He hasn't done a, a book. He hasn't done articles. He hasn't done any good reporting. He's lived off his um, his laurels. He still has a job with uh, CNN. When I was at Vanity, when I did my Vanity Fair piece, he was a contributing editor of Vanity Fair. They just liked him as a figurehead to say that Carl Bernstein's one of our reporters. But he never really did anything. Um, and he's kind of a He's sort of a blowhard of a guy. I kind of like him. <laughs> he's sort of a, in his own way, has some charm to him and so forth. But uh, uh, but uh, I, I, you, you got to say, they've milked this thing pretty good. And um, 50 years you worth. Know, <laughs> 50 years worth. And, you know, they've always done well. I think Woodward's become pretty wealthy. I think Carl Bernstein, not as much, but he's, you know, been able to sing for his supper, so to speak. And, you know, so he's still, uh, he's probably got a decent salary now. So, And John, by the way, do you guys know uh, out there listening where Mark Felt lived? lived? This is unbelievable. But tell people where uh, where he lived because it'll, it'll shock everybody, yeah. I think. Well, he lived on Redford Avenue, which is uh, odd because Robert Redford played uh, Bob Woodward in the movie. So he lives on Redwood, Redford Avenue. And yeah, right before Mark died, we met up on Redford Avenue. Woodward, me, Bernstein, and Mark Felt, we met there and had a nice chat. It was the first time Bernstein had ever met him. Of course, Woodward had known him for years and so forth. But um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun that it was on Red on Redford Avenue. Um, so you don't think and, Nixon was at fault at all? I mean, I feel like he had some role in this. Well, he, I don't want to say it wasn't at fault at all. I wouldn't say that. What he did, though, was he did not understand what had happened because he clearly did not authorize it. Now, he was given bad advice. Here's the deal. I'll just tell it to you straight. He, he committed two acts of obstruction, fairly minor, um, both on the advice of John Dean. John Dean was the White House counsel. Now, Nixon did not know that Dean was really behind the burglaries. He was one of the guys, along with the CIA, that was behind the burglaries. And he had his own purposes for wanting it. So he's a conflicted person. And if you're a lawyer, you can't have a conflict. You can't give advice to a client when you're secretly the guy that did the thing. So he's giving advice to Nixon that's not in Nixon's best interest. It's in Dean's best interest. Because if Dean had the best interest at heart, he would have been 
much more, he would advise Nixon to be more open with it because Nixon didn't do anything wrong, nor did, nor did his top aides. Nixon always thought it might have been a top aide like John Mitchell or Charles Coulson, uh, who were higher up. They didn't do it, but Nixon thought, well, maybe they're lying. But the guy who really knew was his lawyer, and his lawyer didn't tell him. And why did his and lawyer so, seem so, like, uh, weakly on the, you know, on the CNN documentary? It was like he was kind of, I don't know how you say Mr. it. Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Yeah, he acted yeah. like he was Mr. Goody Goody. He's had that act forever. And and if you look at the facts and if the media would report what they should know about the guy, they wouldn't let him get away with it. But they like him to get away with that because it makes Nixon look dirty. And in fact, just the opposite is true. He's the dirty guy. Nixon was the victim of a, of a lawyer who was untrue to his client. Nixon was the client. Because Nixon, Nixon was going to win. No one remembers that, no, but he, he was going to win, and, right? And, and, right. And he, he went, he, Nixon had nothing to do with his break-in. Dean did. And it was a terrible thing to risk Nixon's, his boss's presidency by doing this silly burglary. And he did it. And so now, um, later on afterwards, where he's trying to do the cover-up, he advises Nixon to do the cover-up. So Nixon technically was guilty. However, if the truth came out about what really happened... The public would have been much more mixed. It would have been more like Bill Clinton, where you had one side saying, no, there's nothing wrong with this. It's very minor. The other side saying, oh, no, it's terrible. But at least you would have had a debate. There was no debate back in Watergate. Everybody. I mean, I was in Nixon's Justice Department, and I said he had to go. Everybody I knew in the, in the U.S. Attorney's Office said, oh, yeah, well, Nixon's got to go. But we didn't really know all the facts. That's the funny thing about it. How this thing can go through the system and yet we're all blindsided by what really happened. That's the interesting thing about Watergate. It was basically, now I'm not saying Nixon is covered with glory. He wasn't. He shouldn't have His done character this was hated. I know that. That was the other part of it, too. Right. Well, that's right. He had a lot of hate. But remember, remember, he got elected 49 out of 50 states. He was overwhelmingly reelected because he did such a good job. Now, he had a personality that nobody warms up to. He's not their favorite guy. But he seemed like a very good president. And so he inspired hatred, but he was a good president. And um, then this thing happens, and all of a sudden everybody turns on him. And, and as they should, if he really was guilty, they should turn on him. Uh, the fact is, though, is we did not get the straight scoop from the media. John, that's, write, the real, that's the real message here. To, to write this book, I know you went through 1,500 hours of interviews that, that Mark Felt did. Is that correct? Well, I didn't do 1,500 hours. Mark Felt did 1,500 hours. But you researched them, obviously. Did you research all oh, of yeah, them? Oh, of course. Oh, no, I, I look, I'll tell you what I did. I mean, to write Postgate, my book Postgate, first I've written three books, one with Mark Felt, and I worked on that. And then I worked on the book Postgate, and that took me many years to write and research. I mean, I've got so many files, it's ridiculous. So I went through and copied all 3,000 Post articles that had anything to do with Watergate-related scandals. Uh, and there there's a ton of articles, and I've still got them up in my garage right now. Uh, I used to have them all throughout my office, and now I just have them in my garage. But So I went through an awful lot of documents to nail down my case. And so... I did some very serious reporting here myself and going through this. So when I tell you this stuff, I'm not speaking just off the top of my head. I've really researched it. I've researched the Post articles against what they knew at the time. And I can show how the Post knew facts 
X, Y, and Z and didn't publish facts X, Y, and Z. They published facts A, B, and C, but not X, Y, and Z. And so that's the real problem with um, slanted journalism, uh, partisan journalism. And um, that's that's where it all started was at, was at Watergate. And it became okay. Before this time, sensational journalism was not okay. It was considered trashy. Now it became what used to be called tabloid journalism now became regular journalism. And they've gussied it up, and rather than it being nasty tabloid journalism, it was very high-flown investigative journalism. So mm. that's what's happened to our system, and it's really too bad. I'm talking with other author, John D. O'Connor. You can check out his books uh, right in front of me here. I got them here. The uh, two books, actually, The Mystery of Watergate, Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened, Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed, Deep Throat covered up Watergate and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. I'll say that 20 times fast, okay? And then the host of the Mysteries of Watergate podcast. And uh, before I get to that question about podcasting, which you mentioned earlier, um, 1976 Justice Department, you're there. Is it a cleanup job from the Nixon years or have things settled in and settled down in Washington in 1976? Well, 1976... Watergate was still a big topic, and now President, the new President Ford is running against Jimmy Carter. And the fact is that uh, Watergate was still in everybody's mind, and Ford probably lost that very close election to Carter because of Watergate. People were still very upset about Watergate. A lot of people had defected from the Republican Party and thought Republicans were nasty. It had a big effect, and there was a baby class in the in – the, um, Congress in 1974, they called them Watergate babies. All these people who got elected in 1974, there were Democrats in formerly Republican districts who came to Congress. So it had a, a sea change in our electoral politics, uh, the whole Watergate thing, and sort of made Democrats put Democrats into the ascendancy. And um, I'm not so sure the results have been wonderful because then they started doing things when you have uncontrolled when you have uncontrolled power, the, the uh, Congress was heavily staffed both in Senate and uh, House of Representatives by Democrats. Or a lot of uh, Carter was the president and so forth. So then Reagan comes in along with George H.W. Bush, and you have um, and you have more balanced government as it says you have those guys. Then you have Clinton and so forth. So, uh, but at the time. At the time, well, Watergate had its effect in 76. The Democrats swept through there very cleanly and clearly, and it got Jimmy Carter elected. Well, there you go. Uh, okay. Um, and, of course, Jimmy Carter, I had known him when I was five years old at the time. I have a bit of a history with Washington presidents, but um, we won't get into that in the moment. I also had a connection and a, a friendship with Cardinal John O'Connor, John Cardinal O'Connor, so the interview Another John O'Connor is kind of a, yep. a fun thing for me. I don't know if you ever got to meet Cardinal O'Connor or not, but you both share the same name. That's right. And Sandra Day O'Connor's husband was John O'Connor. So, yeah, there are a lot of John O'Connors around. All right. Well, Mr. John O'Connor, uh, this John O'Connor, John D. O'Connor, um, why did it take two years for Nixon? Because he obviously won in 72. So, the revelations don't come out till 74. Is that why it took two years? 
Well, it slowly was a drip drip and it, the cover up had to crack. And the first big garage meeting, the, the burglary happened June of 72. October of 72 was the first garage meeting, which Deep Throat had in order to make Woodward publish the story he wanted to, to help him in, open up the FBI's investigation. But that just started the cracking. Then what happened was slowly, 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 it became in the interest of people to turn state's evidence. So by the spring of 73, various people were now turning state's evidence and testifying against Nixon. And that excited everybody. You had some Senate hearings that were, uh, you know, very, very dramatic. But that's going through the summer of 73. And then, uh, then what happens is there's still a big fight over the tapes, uh, the White House tapes that were revealed during the 73 Senate hearings. And so it wasn't until the summer of 74 that all the tapes that they wanted were released. They were released in late July. And then by August 8th, Nixon announced his resignation. So a lot of this comes because of the tapes. Okay. And so it's a slow process. I say slow. I mean, a couple of years for sure. legal time, that's not a heck of a lot, really. Um, so it really took a couple of years. Uh, so October but, 72, did he write it as like a, a targeting to try and swing the election or just as an information? Well, Woodward wrote it. Woodward was hoping to swing the election, but really from Felt's point of view, he wanted to help Woodward so that Felt could have an open FBI investigation and not one that's hampered. Um, from Woodward's point of view, he wanted to skewer Nixon before the election. It didn't work. It, they started reporting sensationally, but the public still ignored it largely and they voted for Nixon. And this was, so the first reporting came right before the election in November and and although it was sensational, it wasn't enough to move the needle. Now, it wasn't until the next summer that it became very clear that, that uh, Nixon probably committed obstruction of justice and that he was doing a cover-up. And so there was a big deal about the cover-up. And, um, you know, so that's what got him out of office. Uh, he, if he would have handled this differently, and in fact, my own client kept urging his boss, the head of the FBI, my guy was the number two guy, Please tell President Nixon to just open up, let us do our investigation. There's mm. going to be a couple lieutenants who are behind this. They'll walk the plank and everything will be fine. You're not going to lose your presidency. And it was very good advice. The problem is nobody took it. They just decided in the White House they'd double down and cover up. And then what happens is every time you're covering up, you're more and more getting into crimes. Because you're, you're getting in deeper, crime. yep. Yep. You're getting in deeper. And so, you know, Nixon had nothing to do with the burglary, and yet he left office. He shouldn't have. Uh, you know, and it, it, all it should have been was, hey, look, some some crazy guys did some stuff. Uh, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. He didn't handle it well, but once again, that's because he relied on this junior lawyer who really was interested in himself. What they should have done is gotten an outside lawyer to come in and say, we want you to handle this. For instance, one of the things that the White House did that everybody got them for and call it obstruction was paying what they call hush money. Now, uh, hush money, and, you know, so it what was really the legal expenses and living expenses of the defendants. Mm. Now, any time in any corporation today, if you're, if you're working for a corporation 
and you get in trouble either civilly or criminally as a result of your work for that corporation, your company's got to pay your legal expenses. That's called indemnity. And, and often they also pay you, uh, put you on administrative leave and pay you. Uh, so th that's quite common. Nobody would object to that. If I said today, oh, uh, so-and-so, the chief executive officer of Xerox uh, is getting indicted for, uh, you know, for lying to a customer. Well, the, uh, Xerox pays his legal fees. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But the way the White House did it, the way Dean did it, or made it look so secret and so furtive, and it looked like they were paying for their silence when really, you know, they didn't they need, didn't need to do it that way. They should have been far more open and honest and above board. They said, look, we're going to let it all hang out. We're going to tell you we want to get to the bottom of this. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. And we'll let you know. I'd uh, love to get you back, by that. the way, on the Patty Hearst case, because that seems like a story in and of itself, obviously. So that's right. Next, maybe that's next right. month we'll, we'll follow up about that one. But, but let's do that. Let's let's follow up on that next month, and we'll have a lot of fun with that one. But one last question for today, while I get to know you for the first time, John. Uh, John I feel like I've known you for a while now because our conversation has been so awesome, and thank you for the time on this. Um, but the DOJ today is now sending letters out. I'm sure you're keeping a close eye on your former employer, if you will. Uh, they're sending letters out to parents, calling them terrorists. I mean, where's the DOJ gone wrong in 50 years? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. What happens is, this is true in Russiagate with the FBI. The people understand the power of the media, and so they are, as long as you can get away with that, you do it. This is really all about the teachers union. They're doing this for the teachers union and against the parents. They're trying to calm the parents down because the teachers union likes to do things and, that, and progressives like to do things that regular people don't like. And so they're using the power of the government to do this. And the attorney general knows that he's not going to get skewered by the media because he's a Democrat. If, if Trump did this, oh, he'd have hell to pay. Uh, if any Republican did this and, and tried to go after parents and call them terrorists, I mean, oh, these terrible Republicans, these terrible Republicans, they're just big old meanies. But if a Democrat does it, well, that's kind of cool. They must be, really be great, uh, you know, uh, because they're teaching stuff like transgender stuff to kids that are five years old. Uh, so I think the parents have a good point. Uh, I, I wouldn't want my kids getting confused when they're five or six and seven years old about all this sexual stuff. And, they, I mean, uh, and you know, they ask a lot of questions at that age, and it's going to be confusing for them. That's right. And give them some innocence as it is, you know, as it is. You know, little guys are out there playing with their thing and so forth, but the last thing you want to do is get into all this stuff. It's just too weird. And, uh, and so the parents have a good point. This is the kind of stuff the parents should have a say in, not the school. But politics has entered into it. And because of politics... And because of the media, the combination of progressive politics and the media is really controlling a lot of the action here in our society. The Trump so DOJ I, didn't seem to get much done either, to be honest with you. That's the scary part. Not not many Justice Department's, you know, eras have gotten a lot accomplished, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Well, think about it. I'm not so sure Justice Department should want to accomplish much. But the Justice Department is there for justice. And, uh, you know, and one of the things that 
should not have happened was that there was a special counsel. If the Justice Department were run correctly, you never would have appointed Robert Mueller. There was no need for a special counsel in that case. So the only thing that was of any importance, the Russia investigation, um, the attorney general sort of went went, uh, vacant, Jeff Sessions. And once again, Mm -hmm. the rhinos got trampled by the smart Democrats. And... um, and so, yeah, but but think about it. The Justice Department shouldn't necessarily try to try to do something unless there's something for it to do. I mean, otherwise, they just go through the regular administration of laws in a fair and full way, and they shouldn't be picking out targets and trying to create social divisions, but really just doing their job on a daily basis. And I, 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 I number one, would applaud if our society got more down to business and got serious and mm. principled and we just did things. Um, in a way, the old way, and maybe, you know, returning back to 1965 is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, You know, society was working pretty well then, you know, and we've let it get out of control. Well, that's an interesting comment there. I I, want to expand on that next time we talk, um, because I wasn't around in 65, so I'd I'd like to win on that a little more. But for now, John D. O'Connor, thank you so much, and uh, you are showing that Mark Felt is an American hero, and I know you didn't want to write the book for yourself, but I've loved having you on for 50 uh, minutes to talk about all of this tonight. Listen, this has been a blast. Uh, Let's talk again, huh? Absolutely. I'm Alex Garrett, and uh, stay tuned to more on Alex Garrett Podcasting. We'll talk to you soon.